0: If I ran around like that, I'd tear something, so I am, I'm uh, jealous. Well, brothers and sisters, time is short, so we're going to dive right in. I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of Matthew 21, with your copy of Matthew and turn to Matthew 21 as we read this interesting episode in which our Lord curses a fig tree. Matthew 21, verses 18 through 22. The apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage. We ask... That you would, by your Spirit, make us to bear fruit, that we would not be a fruitless tree. Be with us even this day. Amen. All right, well, brothers and sisters, we have this passage before us. Uh, this passage about the cursing of the fig tree occurs in both Matthew and in Mark, and scholars are united in their agreement that Mark gives you the chronology, and that Matthew here he he condenses it down to a single episode. To, to teach a, a different, he wants to focus on a different point than Matthew, than Mark has for the same episode. But essentially what you have happen is this. The events of Holy Week are thus. He rides into town on Sunday, has the triumphal entry, and he goes straight away to the temple. And he looks around and he surveys everything. He takes it all in and it's evening, so he goes out, he goes back and he lodges at Bethany and the word lodge there is interesting. it implies a courtyard it implies that he was camping because there wasn't enough rooms in the towns for all the for all of the uh, pilgrims that came into town. but he spends the night in Bethany. Monday morning, he walks back into Jerusalem, and that's when he cleanses the temple. That's what we talked about yesterday. So, so Mark records that the first part of this episode here occurred on Monday morning. As he's walking into Jerusalem, at which time he's going to cleanse the temple, he sees a fig tree, and the fig tree doesn't have fruit, so he curses it. He goes into Jerusalem. He does his thing and they go back home. And then on Tuesday morning, the next day, he's going back into Jerusalem. And as they pass the same spot, the the apostles, the disciples see the fig tree and Mark specifies that it's withered to the root. And that's when they point out this tree that just yesterday you, you, you cursed. It's withered all up. So... Matthew condenses it into one moment, but it was actually on two days in the span of 24 hours about. Now, it's still a miracle of providence because trees don't wither up that fast. Okay, your Christmas tree was cut days or weeks before you get it, and it's not withered up in an instant, okay? So understand that this is what's going down. Going into Jerusalem, there's a fig tree, Jesus is hungry, he stops, but Mark specifies it wasn't even the season for figs. There's no figs on the tree. He curses it, he goes into Jerusalem, cleanses the temple. What is going on? Well, if you have ever read the Old Testament, and I hope you have, you are familiar with the concept of symbolic action. There's lots of things that take place that represent some grander truth. Uh, take, for example, Exodus 7, when Aaron throws down Moses' staff, it turns into a serpent, and the magicians throw down their staffs, they turn into serpents too. But then what happens? Moses' staff, serpent, eats up the other ones. Now, that's not how snakes normally behave, just gobbling up each other like that. But that's a symbolic act, okay? Fast forward to the prophets. Oh, my goodness. The prophets are renowned for their symbolic actions that represent something else. I mean, there's, there's so much of it. Isaiah walked around for three years naked. Ezekiel was mute from the time of his calling until he heard that the destruction of Jerusalem had occurred. Jeremiah buys a sash, wears it, throws it in the ground and buries it. And then like months later comes back to it, digs it up and it's all rotten. What's going on? Jeremiah, as part of his ministry, was not permitted to marry Not only was he not permitted to marry, but he couldn't attend any parties. There's a reason he's called the weeping prophet. Picking up pottery and smashing it on the ground. Hosea being told to marry an immoral woman. Lying on one side for over a year. And then rolling over to the other side having to bake bread in the middle of the town square on a fire made of human excrement. Ezekiel cutting off his hair and then dividing his hair into three piles, burning a third of it, chopping a third of it up, and then the last third he throws it to the wind and he's chasing it around with his sword. The prophets are full of symbolic action, but so too is the Old Testament in its entirety. What we're having before us today is an example of a symbolic act. In in fact, last week too was a symbolic act, the cleansing of the temple. Make no mistake, within an hour of Jesus going away, it was back to business as usual. Okay, It was a symbolic action that, Conveyed meaning and significance beyond the event itself. So the first point for today that you have to understand is that the cursing of the fig tree is a symbolic act. Jesus is not simply venting out his frustrations at the religious leaders on some poor old piece of wood. Okay, it's a symbolic act. The fig tree, that metaphor of a fig tree, of a vine, of an olive tree. Those botanical, horticultural metaphors are pervasive in the Old Testament and in the New. For Israel, in particular in the people of God in general. In fact, if you fast forward just a few verses to verse 43 you'll see the connection between the taking away of the kingdom from the nation of Israel and this action here in the cursing of the fig tree. And we're going to look at that next week. But by this action, make no mistake about it. You've had the king come in, and he is here by this prophetic metaphor symbolic action metaphor, likening the people of Israel, likening the old covenant circumstance to a tree that bears no fruit. And so the kingdom will be given to another. That's what he says in just a few verses. What a horrible prospect to have the kingdom removed. In a couple chapters, in Matthew 23, Jesus is going to advise his listeners that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses, so you need to do what they say. They have real authority for now, but not for long. That authority will be taken away and given to another. And in fact, back in Matthew 16, Jesus has foretold future action, not present action, future action from from the vantage point of Matthew 16, that the keys of the kingdom would be given to the apostles and through them to the church courts. So understand this is a symbolic act signifying the judgment of the king and the cursing of the king on a people. Second point. Jesus is judge. Jesus is the judge. He judges this tree. But in John 5, we're told specifically that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And we are told by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What a wondrous truth that he is both savior and judge. And he's an active judge. Consider the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1. He is the Here's what it says, the word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand And who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And the seven golden lampstands represent the churches in their totality. And he issues out in those seven letters to the seven churches what we would call on the spot corrections. Not final judgments. But you see his judging, ruling, reigning actions in that book. Jesus is judge. He is vested with the authority of God by the Father to govern over all creation, to call all creation to worship and obey him. And in the final analysis, he is judge. But there's something about this judge that I think you need to know. Contrary to some of our humanly judges who who just don't care. Contrary to how we oftentimes are, where we'll dismissively eh, write someone off. We see a caring intimate judge here. I want you to look at verse 19. There's just a little preposition. But like so often the case when you're looking at the the when you look at the Greek, the difference when, when a, when, when a not-so-common preposition is used, it's conveying. It says in verse 19, And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. He went to it. To. The preposition to right there. To. It's the preposition epi as opposed to ice. And epi, typically, more often than not, is translated upon. So it conveys the image that Jesus didn't just come up to the tree and take a gander. No fruits readily apparent. May you be cursed forever. No, the image we get here is that Jesus climbed the tree. That he got up in the tree, upon the tree. And he carefully, intimately studied, is there any fruit? And he found none. So he's a careful judge. But just as you see way back in Genesis, when when Abraham is imploring on behalf of the people of, of Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of his nephew Lot, we see a God here who is, who is willing to be merciful if but any fruit can be found at all. And yet sadly none is found. So he's a judge whose judgment is fierce. But he's a judge whose disposition is to be benevolent, patient, and merciful so you can entrust yourself to the one who is both Savior and judge understand he came to give his life as a ransom for many and by faith you are united to him now this judgment that Jesus passes after carefully examining this tree. This, this is likened to a lifetime that he spent amongst them. He was born, and he lived approximately 30 years before he began his ministry. His relative John the Baptist had had his ministry, and we learn in Matthew 3:8 that specifically addressed to the religious leaders, John had said to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We've talked last week about how when Jesus came on the scene and started his ministry, that that I believe John indicates that there was an an initial cleansing of the table or, or of the temple, that he conducted his ministry, all that teaching, all those signs, all those wonders, all that traveling for three years, and then the king enters Jerusalem, and he goes and he looks around, and nothing has changed. Unfortunately, because our God is so gracious and merciful and he delights in showing forgiveness, but we're so wicked and wretched, we oftentimes presume upon God's grace. We presume upon his patience, upon his forbearance, uh, we, 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 we think of God as being the God of limitless second chances because God's in the forgiving business. And what a great deal that is. He likes to forgive. Well, I like to sin. So, woo But the fact of the matter is, this passage is a poignant reminder that the day of second chances comes to an end. And you do not know when the day of repentance closes and all that's left for you is judgment. So don't presume upon God's forbearance and his mercy and his grace. You never know when the judge appears and he wants to see fruit. So Jesus is the judge, the judge who is patient and merciful, but nonetheless He's the judge who will indeed render unto every man according to his labors. That brings us to the third point. Jesus expects fruit from his people. What kind of fruit was Jesus seeking here? Oftentimes we forget that uh, the temple and the old covenant dispensation was in a different arrangement than we are. Galatians 3 likens the old covenant to to a guardian in place set until the fullness of time should come. And now that guardian has has been, we've been released from that guardian and, and the book of Hebrews refers to the old covenant as type and shadow and rendered obsolete and passing away. John in John 1 tells us that From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. What do we mean? For through, we were given the law through Moses, which is of grace because without knowing the problem, we can't possibly have hope for knowing the solution. But for the law was given through Moses and then grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Okay? The old covenant with the temple at its heart, was in a different redemptive historical situation. It was a preparatory covenant. So what fruit was Jesus looking for? Well, what's the purpose of the law? There's a threefold purpose, right? One of the purposes is to promote an orderly society to restrain evil and promote good? How had they done that? How had they done with that? Doesn't Jesus rail against the the usury, the extortion of widows, the oppression of the poor? Doesn't Jesus rail against that? How they can please God Had they honored the Lord with their lives, with their heart, soul, mind, and strength? But mostly, the law was given to show us our need for Christ. And so when Jesus came, did he find a people ready for him? And the answer is no. Look at the Beatitudes, and one of the things that's, stark about the Beatitudes is essentially, you can sum it all up with the person that's blessed is the person who is broken and contrite, who is keenly aware of their sinfulness and of God's holiness and of their lack of ability or even capacity to attain it. And so they are desperately dependent It's a heart posture that comes from knowing the holiness of God. And yet, it's absent. The Pharisee prays, oh, thank you for not making me like this guy over here. That's prayed in his heart. He's not just saying it out loud to tear this guy down. He believes it. There's very little repentance. They've turned the worship of God into a business transaction. You would think that as a people of, of God who are priests, that they would rejoice whenever the pagans turn from their pagan idolatry and want to seek the Lord. Instead, they're shut out. There's no hesed. There's no loving kindness. There's no fidelity. There's no heart appetite for the Lord at all. Faith, worship, prayer, they're all starkly absent, except as formal functions. And Jesus has had enough. Understand that this latter part about praying and the disciples marveling at the tree withering. He's he's showcasing the the lifeblood that flows from faith of of our need to pray continually, to seek the face of God continually, to be before him continually. And if we by faith apprehend Christ, we can accomplish the impossible. The the commentaries all tell me that moving mountains was a figure of speech back then like it is now. I don't know. I, I don't have first century sources to verify that with, so I have to trust the commentators. Jesus did use a lot of hyperbole in his ministry, so I don't know. But here's the point. Prayer and, the, and that flows from faith, that's what's expected of us, and we can then do the works of God, which is fruitfulness in the sight of God, rather than being vain and empty. And that's the shocking thing. Jesus approaches a tree that's in full bloom, lots of greenery. It looks from a distance like a healthy tree, like a beautiful fig-producing tree. And that's Exactly what, from the outside, the system of religion that they had looked. It was so appealing. There were lots of converts. You can read in Acts, there's, or, or in the Gospels, of Gentiles who had converted because compared to the debauched revelry of pagan worship, the Jewish worship was, was dignified and, 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 and respectable, and it just seemed more sober-minded. You can sit in Jerusalem and see the mechanical workings of the of the industrial worship complex moving and churning 24/7. It looked like a healthy situation, but it was devoid of what the Lord was seeking, fruit. The fruit that comes from knowing the holiness of God. And we too, brothers, are called upon to bear fruit. Romans 7, 4, Paul tells us this. My brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. That is, we belong to Christ, in order that we may bear fruit for God. We are called to bear fruit. And what is that fruit? Well, I think preeminently you should write down Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. And a, this flows from a heavenly mindedness that has had your mind set on things that are above. And so the energies with which we expend our lives are then spent in the propagation not of our own name, not of our own interests, but of our King. and conversely from with from, in contrast with the old covenant establishment when we see people desirous of coming to the lord we don't shut them out and put up barriers we don't put our liturgy above people's hearts that's what they did the form was imminent Now today, brothers and sisters, we have some men who are going to become officers of our church. And the officers of our church have been appointed by Christ. That's one of the things we may oftentimes forget because we have a vote and we may think, I put them in charge. No, we're simply acknowledging what the Lord did. The Lord has put men in charge as officers of the church And officers, this word is for you. Your position is granted to you to promote fruit in the Lord's vineyard. It is your task to watch first yourself and then those among whom and over whom the Lord has set. You are to do the hard work of nurturing, admonishing, rebuking, instructing, counseling, comforting, disciplining. Lest any distorted branches start emerging from our lives, they must be pruned, nurtured to grow and produce fruit. Because there's a great risk Not that things will just go feral, which is bad. But remember the parable that this bush in full bloom represents Israel and Israel looked beautiful but it was empty and dead. This is where the gut check comes in, folks. Last week at our congregational meeting we talked about all these wonderful things that's taking place and transpiring in through and for our church. The numbers are great. All this, great, 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 great. In other words, it's possible that we could be a tree in full bloom looking beautiful. But the danger is that if the servants aren't tending the vineyard, that we become a tree that is, looks to be flourishing for a moment but is devoid of fruit. That's the gut check. Do not mistake apparent success for fruit. Labor, officers, according to the task given you as elders or deacons to ensure that our flock here produces fruit. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the lessons from this fig tree. Grant that we would turn to Christ in faith while the opportunity for repentance is here. Thank you for your patience and your care to set officers over us that we might be tended. What forbid us from kicking back and snapping back when so tended? For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.